This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, doctors who sexually abuse their patients. So many of the cases of doctors who had engaged in sexual misconduct, they might have lost their license, but they got it back in fairly short order, or they didn't lose their license at all. The ultimate breach of medical trust when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy Radio Health Journal, you'll also like Viewpoints, our sister show covering current affairs. This week on Viewpoints. J. Edgar Hoover and a lot of others in this country believed that the communist insurrection was at our doorstep, and they were on the constant look for people who they considered dangerous. How the FBI used a famed civil rights photographer as an informant. Then how we can all learn to be kinder. All that and more this week on Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station, iTunes, and Stitcher. When Dr. Altaf Sadi was a medical student in Boston, she volunteered for three years as a rape crisis hotline counselor. She heard many disturbing stories there, but given her position as a future doctor, some stories were more disturbing than others. Then came the news about Dr. Larry Nasser, the former USA Gymnastics team doctor who sexually abused hundreds of young female athletes. Saadi decided it was time to speak out. During that time, I had spoken with multiple people on the hotline who had reported to me that the individual who had assaulted them was a doctor. And then it happened again and again. And I think that was, it's really shocking to hear that. I think as both in our medical training, but also in popular culture, doctors are sort of portrayed as heroes and rarely with negative qualities, especially to the extent of sexually assaulting a patient. The horror of such abuse is almost impossible to put into words. And yet, just as with the Catholic priest sexual abuse scandal that remained hidden for so many decades, sexual abuse of patients by doctors has gone on largely under the radar. We found more than 2,400 doctors across the country who have been sanctioned by medical boards, disciplined by medical boards for sexual misconduct with patients, of which slightly more than half still had active licenses at the time we looked, which was in the middle of 2016. And again, these are doctors who were involved in sexual misconduct with their patients, not involved in other sorts of misconduct. That's Danny Robbins, an investigative reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He wrote a series of articles about doctor abuse that ran from July 2016 to the end of the year, long before the Larry Nasser story broke. Robbins describes how he got the idea for the series. Mostly in 2015, I had done a series of stories on a doctor in the Georgia prison system and apparent negligence that had led to deaths of nine female inmates that were in his care. He had come from New York, and when I looked into his background, I found that he had been placed on probation in New York for nothing to do with sex, but with just really bad medicine in emergency rooms. And they had placed him on probation. His practice had to be monitored closely for three years. He came to Georgia and got a license free and clear, no restrictions on it, was hired into the prison system. And the same thing was happening in the way he treated inmates as patients. But it got me thinking that how did this happen? And the medical board treats its deliberations as private. 
until they come out with a public order. So I never could find out how this particular doctor was licensed without any restrictions when New York said, no, he's a danger. So Robbins dug deeper, and what he found shocked him. I started looking at Georgia licenses. I just would look, you know, literally online if a doctor was sanctioned, what it was for, starting with A, went to B, went to C, and started to see that there were basically three categories. Your basic malpractice, doctors who were impaired, and doctors who had engaged in sexual misconduct. And as I looked further, I saw that so many of the cases of doctors who had engaged in sexual misconduct, they might have lost their license, but they got it back in fairly short order, or they didn't lose their license at all. And it was very intriguing. It just seemed like a high school teacher or a coach, that would never happen. And my editor and I, we looked at every Georgia order that we could simply by reading them. And we found close to 100 doctors in Georgia who had been sanctioned for sexual misconduct with patients, and close to 70. Two out of every three continued to practice, either got their license back or never lost it to begin with. Why aren't these doctors more strongly sanctioned? Why aren't they sent to prison? Robbins says that unless a patient reports the crime to prosecutors, state medical boards will cover it up. The boards don't report it into the criminal justice system unless the victim does. And one of the things we saw was many cases do go into the criminal justice system, but the criminal justice system treats the doctors with similar deference. Or the hospital where they work might look into this activity and also treat them with deference. It wasn't just the medical boards. We would see doctors kind of sneaking through the criminal justice system with charges that would keep them off the sex offender registry, then going to the medical board and getting some sort of a remediation look, go through this program and continue to practice. So just as in police corruption stories where cops don't like to rat on other cops, it seems doctors behave much the same way. Maybe there but for the grace of God go they. They understand what it took to get licensed and trained. You know, it's their peers. One of the things, though, in Georgia, though, the doctors decide it, but quite often it's a negotiation between the offending doctor's lawyer, who's usually very good, they can afford the best, and the state attorney general's office. The state attorney general's office will look at it like, what can we do to get some kind of result when we can't afford to take this into court, to take this to the final step? So they'll reach some sort of an accommodation where the doctor will go get some continuing education, boundary training, they call it, and then come back to practice. And it'll be negotiated. And then the doctors on the board will say, this is what you think we should do. Attorney general's office, okay, it's done. For physicians, there's a lot to do in terms of really pushing ourselves to counter this culture that we have in medicine that makes it taboo to report someone's bad behavior. So I think we really need to push ourselves as well as sort of the medical societies and the medical state boards and professional organizations that we belong to sort of hold our profession and our colleagues to a higher standard. Today, that higher standard doesn't seem to exist. Hundreds of sexually abusive doctors identified by state medical boards all over the country continue to practice medicine. The National Practitioner Data Bank, run by the U.S. government, collects and discloses negative information on health care practitioners, but only doctors that have been suspended for at least 30 days are reported to the data bank. Robbins says hospitals can avoid reporting incidents of sexual misconduct by limiting the reprimand.
There are requirements to report to the National Practitioner Data Bank, but for example, it would be a 30-day suspension of a person's privileges would be required. So a lot of hospitals will suspend them for 20 days and keep it off the National Practitioner Data Bank. So what can patients do to protect themselves and check up on their doctor's ethical behavior? If you were a patient and wanted to know about your doctor, you would probably have to go online and look it up. And you would see if they had been sanctioned at all, a very bare bones finding of what we often would see with boundary violations, things like that. Then we would look closer at the case, dig farther and see that what would be called boundary violations would be very serious misconduct during an exam, for example. But you could walk into the doctor's office and you wouldn't know unless you knew enough to go online. And then even then you'd see a very bare bones document. And in a hospital, you wouldn't be public. There might even be a criminal filing, but unless you went online and found that, you wouldn't know it either. So, for example, in August 2017, the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation placed a clinical psychologist from Glenview, Illinois, on probation for a minimum of two years. It was based on, quote, unprofessional conduct and failure to maintain appropriate boundaries while treating a patient. But what does that mean? Does it mean he was sexually abusive? A spokesperson for the state agency says that because the doctor signed a consent order, there was no hearing and therefore no public information released on the details of the case. In the meantime, the doctor is still listed on his health care organization's website as accepting new patients. The board orders themselves that you would look at are so sketchily written. It's a negotiation, and the orders are written through that negotiation. So what we would find is doctors who do various serious things, when you really drill down to it, either through maybe a criminal charge or a civil lawsuit or actually finding the victims, are called boundary violations. And you might not see it as being as serious unless you knew the whole unvarnished truth. And secondarily, across the country, confidential orders are used for sexual misconduct that means there's absolutely no public acknowledgement of this. Robin says one other reason abusive doctors get away with their crimes is that many victims remain silent. Another thing we saw, particularly with victims reluctant to turn in doctors, say in a largely Hispanic community, under the fear that if they did, they would lose somebody who served them. What just grabbed me working on this was how many victims didn't keep quiet and still nothing was done. And then how many victims you went to, and they would say, yeah, wasn't something done? No, it wasn't. According to Robbins, only 11 states have laws that require medical authorities to report patient sexual abuse to police or prosecutors. And Robbins says, of course, most state medical boards are made up of mostly doctors. One of the things we saw after we started reporting, people were saying, look, you need more consumer members, people from the general public. And for example, in Georgia, there's only two consumer members. The rest are physicians appointed by the governor. And usually the governor appoints people that he, he would know or supported their campaign, that kind of thing. And then they give their time once a month. They come to Atlanta and meet and they are dealing with other doctors. Doctors go through a tremendous amount of training, have a lot of education, are particularly valuable to a community and let's not throw that away. Let's give them another chance to do what they were trained to do. That attitude 
is prevalent. Dr. Altof Sadi, who is now a practicing neurologist, was nervous about writing her original article that appeared in STAT, an online journal, and about talking to us for this segment. She didn't know what the reaction of her colleagues might be, but she believes it's important for her and for her colleagues to speak out. The sad thing was once I wrote the article and, you know, you sort of keep track of responses or people send you messages and I saw that other people saying, yes, this happens to me. And so I'm really hoping that there's sort of more momentum around addressing this issue. My biggest worry is that, you know, we have these big headline news stories and there is attention brought to the subject and then it fades into the background. And I think that's a disservice to our patients. So I'm happy to try to bring more awareness to this issue so that we can you know, keep the conversation going and try to change the way that this issue is addressed. Hearing all of this will only make it worse for anyone who's already nervous about seeing their doctor. But having open eyes and a cautious approach is warranted. And Sadi says you can always ask a nurse to be present in the exam room. You can learn more about all of our guests and about the Atlanta Journal-Constitution series by visiting our website at radiohealthjournal.net. Our writer-producer this week is Polly Hanson. I'm Reed Pence. Medical Notes this week. Chemicals called PFCs are used to make nonstick pans, stain-resistant carpets, and water-repellent jackets. They're already linked to a variety of diseases, and now a new study finds that PFCs may also make it much easier for people to regain weight after a diet. The study in the journal PLOS Medicine followed more than 600 people during and after being on a diet. The average subject gained back about half what they'd lost, but those with the highest blood PFC levels regained an average of five pounds more. Researchers say resting metabolism rates were much slower in those with high PFC levels, leading to easier weight gain. We've reported on bullying and incivility in America's offices recently, and we noted that women report more incivility against them than men. But the source of most of that incivility may surprise you, other women. A study in the Journal of Applied Psychology shows that the queen bee syndrome is alive. Women reported that other women were more likely than men to put them down, make demeaning remarks, or ignore them in a meeting. And finally, when it comes to living past age 90, which is more important to partake in, exercise or alcohol? The answer, drink up. A study presented to the American Association for the Advancement of Science shows that 15 to 45 minutes of exercise per day cuts your risk of premature death by 11%, but two glasses of beer or wine per day cuts that risk by 18%. And that's Medical Notes this week. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.